turn to Luke 24, and we'll go through that scripture together. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again and they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles and these words appeared to them as nonsense they would not believe them but Peter arose and ran to the tomb stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at that which had happened. What's happening, bro? It's come out of there. It's saying funny stuff. Let me just point a few things. Point to a few things technically before we get into the great homiletical masterpiece I have for you this morning. On the first day of the week, it says, now that's Sunday, and the reason that we worship on the first day of the week instead of the Sabbath, technically the Sabbath is Saturday, always has been, is because we celebrate the resurrection. First day of the week. Now, some of you have some technical questions about whether or not the crucifixion really took place on Good Friday or whether or not it took place on Good Wednesday because you know that year there was a Sabbath, a special Sabbath, on Thursday as well as the one on Saturday. And for those of you who know that Jesus predicted that he would spend three, di- three days and three nights in the, in the belly of the earth before he rose again... You can't quite figure out, even though Jewish days run from sundown to sundown, can't quite figure out quite how that's three full days. And so it could very well have been that he was crucified on Wednesday. We could be having Good Wednesday. So that he would be in the, the earth um, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and you'll notice that he was raised. He didn't spend all of Saturday night there because he was raised before the sun broke out, before the dawn. So therefore, um, you can technically meet the scriptural prophecy if that's important to you. But whether or not you have him on Good Friday or Good Wednesday, it doesn't really matter. He fulfills the prophecy um, in in his way. At early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. Now, they were in a big rush, and let me tell you why. It was believed in that part of Palestine 
that for three days the spirit of the departed one would hover over the tomb. And by the time three days was gone, the body would have been deteriorated to such an extent that the spirit would depart into its new residing place. So it was terribly frustrating to these, to these women not to be able to anoint this body during that three days because they would have believed, if they believed like the general population, that the Spirit of Christ was there watching over the body and could have seen how they would have anointed the body. So that's why they were in such a rush to get there. They wanted to get there before the Spirit left. Also, I don't want you to confuse this anointing with embalming. Some of, the, some of your commentaries say embalming. The Hebrews did not embalm. The Egyptians embalmed in order to preserve, preserve the physical body. These spices they brought, brought were a ritual in order to fulfill what was required in Jewish custom. That has significance. They loved Jesus, but all they knew how to do was to fulfill what was required in the custom. Now, a couple of more things before we go through. They found the stone rolled away, and then two men stood near them in dazzling apparel. Now, I want you to get the word for dazzling here. Some of, you, some of your scriptures say shining. Um, the Greek word is a strapo, and it means like lightning, flashing, okay? When I was pastor in a, in a formal church, I had a robe that was white brocade. And baby, it came real close to what's in here. Had a volume, volume control on it. No. <laughs> Track lighting up the sides. It was sharp. It shown. Okay, so I want you to get the idea that there's, this is not just, you know, like they, like they do, you know, tied white, you know, the commercials. This is, this has a heavenly aura, you know, Shekinah glory type aura about it. And thirdly, I want you to notice the word um, in, in verse 11, these words appear to them as nonsense. The Greek word is lira, liro, and we get the word leery from it. We get the word uh, to leer, you know, kind of to leer is kind of raise your lip like this, you know, like. So when they came back and they reported the resurrection of Christ, here were disciples who were going, get out of here, I've not listened to this. Now let me tell you why. It would seem that the disciples would be the first to believe, wouldn't it? But there's an instance in here, there's an, there's an innuendo that it's tough to catch just reading through. The reason why is because the disciples loved Jesus so much and they were so disappointed and so hurt by his crucifixion that they could hardly stand to get their hopes up again. And when the little person in you is crushed, that's the person that hopes in another person. It's a long time before you can ever get enough courage to place your trust again. Remember when you were a little, little guy in fourth grade or a little gal in fourth grade and they had Valentine's Day and you liked a girl, you know, and you wrote her this stuff, said, boy, you're my, be my honey, you know, one of those deals. And the, wor and the girl didn't even send you a Valentine. What did you say? girls. They stink. All of them. They stink. 
Girls are silly. Girls are stupid. Why? What happened? You were hurt. They're hurt inside. And the logical defense mechanism was just to fluff it off as nonsense. See? That's what's happening with the disciples. Now, let me tell you this. John Stuart Mill, one of the greatest philosophers of all time, put the essence of this sermon well. I don't preach sermons anymore. What am I talking about? The message. What God wants you to understand. Sermons have nice three words in a story and end up with everybody crying and stuff. These are just the words he wants you to hear. He said this. The fatal tendency of mankind lies in the fact that people stop thinking about a thing after it has become an indisputable fact in their mind. Let me say that again. The fatal tendency of, of, of mankind lies in the fact that people stop thinking about a thing after it becomes an indisputable fact in their mind. They had seen Jesus die. They had seen him buried. It became an indisputable fact in their mind. So they jumped to the premature conclusion that that was it. That they would stop thinking about it. Why? Because we don't like to go on thinking about things. It causes tension. We like things to be resolved. And even if it's resolved in a painful way, we want to get it over with and get on in our lives. Growth, any kind of growth, causes tension, and we don't like tension. So we'd rather just resolve it. We'd rather just resolve it. Carl Jung said this. Carl Jung is uh, probably the second most famous psychologist that ever lived, Sigmund Freud being the first most famous. He said this. One of the most surprising elements in a happy marriage that a happy marriage requires is tension. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, man, my, my marriage ought to be hilarious then. I mean, we got a healthy marriage because we got that part down. But let me tell you what he's talking about. He said, when you know all the answers, there is no fresh interest. There is no fresh interest. Guys, do you want to know why your wives provoke you? Good. Yeah, he said. <laughs> why they build tension? Because that's the only way they can get your attention. Guys, after something, hey, I'm married. You know, what do you mean do I love you? I married you, didn't I? And then they lay down on the couch and go like this. It's settled in their mind. It's settled. Why talk about how much we love each other? Why do I have to keep telling you? I heard Bob say one time that a guy, you know, if, he, if, if, a, if a guy, Bob Foster said, I hope I can quote you on this. He wasn't talking personally. He's just giving a statistic here. It, you know, a, a guy, if you tell him, you know, once a year that you love him, he'll, he'll you know, he's suited okay. But you tell a woman that you love her, and one hour later, she wants to know where she stands, you know? <laughs> now look, this is important to note. 
We have this tendency that we want to settle things, we want to jump to conclusions, and we want to jump to them quickly because we don't want to work with it anymore. But what is required for a fresh relationship with God is the kind of tension that pulls us to think about it more, even though you think it's already resolved. And that's why that day they went, they found a stone, but they didn't find the Lord. What they had was no real religion at all. They came to do their duty and to love someone who was dead. And after they found, or they did not find him, they were puzzled. William Godwin once wrote this. I love this. Any truth that stands in your mind unaccompanied by the evidence on which it was based cannot truly be said to have been apprehended at all. Listen to that again. Any truth that stands in your mind without the evidence upon which it was based cannot truly be said to have been apprehended fully at all. In other words, you can believe a whole lot about Jesus Christ, but if He's not there, you've missed the point. You can believe a whole lot about your marriage, but if she's not there, you've missed the point. You can believe a whole lot about your children and what it is to be a good parent. But if they're not there, you've missed the point. Now, they've got a rock so far. That's it. And here come these angels in dazzling apparel. And the first thing they do is ask a question. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Now, what were they, why would they ask a question? Let me ask you a question. When your kids make a big mistake, after you have told them a dozen times, do you know how many, how many times Jesus predicted his own resurrection? I mean, I can, there are at least eight times in the Gospels, different times that he predicted his own resurrection. After you've told your kid eight times not to do something, and they do it, What's the first thing you do? Why did you do that? You ask them a question, don't you? Don't you? I can remember Josh growing up. He was two years old. And we don't have a lot of sentimental stuff in our house. We just, we're not sentimental people. But there were two lamps that Becky had handed down by somebody in her family. See, I don't even know who they were. That's how sentimental I am. <clears throat> but they were very valuable to her. And, and, and Jice would go in and spin around. We were living in Princeton, Indiana, and spin around his hardwood floor, you know. And we'd say, now, honey, don't get close to the lamps. Okay. No, really, don't want you to do that. Okay. One day, we were out of the room. He was in the room. We heard this crash. But I tell you, I came around that doorway like Lou Ferrigno. You know, the Hulk. And I saw this little two-year-old face doing this. First time I'd ever seen in a two-year-old's eyes the words without any voice, I am in deep weeds. 
And what did I do? Why did you do that? Didn't we tell you 50 times not to do that? Why did you do that? Now, let me interrupt my own tirade here. Have any of you ever gotten an intelligent answer to a question like that? <laughs> ever? I mean, the most you can get is one word. Don't know. <laughs> one, you know, don't know. I mean, I would have been satisfied if he said, well, Dad, actually, I was training for the Olympics in the discus throw, you know? I was testing out centrifugal force, and I just, you know, preparing for preschool. I would have walked out of the room. But I didn't get it. I didn't get it. He's one like this. What is your concern when you ask a question like that? Well, you may be trying to keep from killing, <clears throat> but what you really want is for the kids to think, don't you? I mean, it's not so much the behavior that you're trying to correct, it's the fear inside that they will never listen to you. And you're not just trying to instill doubt about behavior, you're trying to reconstruct thinking processes. So naturally, you start asking questions. That's what the angels were all about, you know? Do you remember? That's not about behavior. That's about thinking. That's about a new way of apprehending. Now, the reason we get so loud is because we don't feel much authority. We don't feel like we're getting through. Sometimes my kids say, why are you yelling? And I keep saying, because the first three times I said this, you didn't. They said, well, we didn't hear you. And I said, that's my point. You feel like you've got to escalate volume, see? When you have real authority, you don't have to do that. The angels didn't have to do that. When you've got real authority, you don't have to do that. I mean that... Let me give you an example. If you're driving down the street and there's some clown standing out on the median yelling at you, saying, you're a terrible driver, you stink, you're a terrible driver, you're just going to go by and go, wow, strange stuff, you know? But it's not really going to wreak havoc with your day. Let me ask you what happens if a police car just drives behind you. Let me, let me do this. What happens when the lights go on? What happens? Ah! Nothing's happened but the flashing, you know, a stropo has gone on right behind you, and you feel like beating your head against, oh, no. You know? So you pull over. What do they do? Does the cop come up and say, say, this is a 25-mile-hour zone. How many times have I told you not to speed? He doesn't do that. He comes up, and he says, could I see your license? And you're going, oh, you know. By the way, it really makes me mad that sometimes you women can cry and just get off of the warning. I want to tell you that. Really makes me mad. I tried that once. He called me a wimp and gave me a ticket anyhow. <laughs> Where was my point? I don't know. My point is that you don't have to yell. I mean, these angels didn't come down and say, why do you seek the living one among the dead? You know, go ahead and cut me a switch. You know, they didn't, give me a belt. I'll show you something here. They were just saying, look, let's begin the thinking process here. At one time in my life, I had a coach who didn't yell, but every time he got frustrated, he'd do this. He'd coach for 20 years. His face was almost flat. He had no eyebrows. You know, and that's what they were doing. They're saying, 
Let's, so that, let's, let's think about here. Let's think about this. And they wanted to evoke and restructure an entire way of thinking. Now, the women's response was appropriate. I mean, they got down in oriental obeisance. They bowed their face to the earth, and that's what you do in, in, in a uh, presence of a divine authority. That's what you do. It was appropriate. But that wasn't their interest. The appropriate response was not their interest. I came in, blew a cork. You're going to think I'm a terrible father, <clears throat> and I, have, I do have a long way to go as a father. But I blew a cork the other day at Isaac for something. I can't even remember what it is now. And I raised my boys kind of like they're on a football team, you know. And so I came in and I said, Isaac, I can't believe you did this. Why did you do this? You shouldn't have done this and, you know, don't ever do it again. And Isaac goes, okay. And I went, I'm not getting through here. And I started up louder. You can't do this. You understand this? He goes, yes, I understand. Okay, you're right. And I said, why are you not getting mad at me and defending yourself? He said, well, I learned in campus life this is how to respond to an irate parent. But just the response is not enough, see? He is. He's, it's, it's exactly right. That's how you respond. You know, you, you, say, you, you, know, you say, okay, let's, let's go with that. That's how you respond. But I'm not looking for just a response. The reason that I keep on, and I've got to think of a different way because that's not working. The reason that I keep on is because I want the thinking process to change. I want to know that my sons before they do the things that they didn't mean to do, will mean not to do the things so that they will not hurt themselves or other people. And you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ wants that same thing from me. Exactly. He doesn't care if I'm good at religion. You know? You're a Christian? Of course I am. I go to church. Filled with the Holy Spirit? Of course I am. Boy, I, you know, I read the Bible every day. Don't I speak in tongues? Don't I, you know? He doesn't care about all of those manifestations, whichever particular manifestations you or I happen to have. doesn't care about them. Because all of those are appropriate. But unless Jesus is alive and you are communicating with him on a personal basis, they are just appropriate responses. That's all they are. That's it. He will not be satisfied, you will not be satisfied, you will not be filled until you can hear His voice. Until you have a living relationship with Him. And you know what? That's tough. Because that doesn't come in a couple of days or a couple of weeks. That doesn't come in a couple of years. That takes years of dedication to a living God in order to get ourselves back to the place where we can hear Him again. The trouble with wanting, somebody once said, to go out and get a little ivory is that there's always an elephant attached. The trouble with wanting to be a good Christian is that there's way more to it than we realize. And it's not of our doing. It's of His doing. You know what? Nothing really 
matters until we learn to love. Nothing. I mean, it counts that we are acting correctly and behaving correctly because we're not injuring ourselves, we're not injuring other people, we're providing a good example, we're being good citizens, all of that kind of stuff. It counts. But nothing really matters until you learn to love. I've had husband after husband come into my office recently and they say, I can't seem to satisfy my wife. I keep saying, what do you want? You know, and then I go do it. Whatever it is, I go do it. And I just can't seem to get it. You know, it's not quite happening. They forgot to love her. The Bible never says to you, take out the garbage. Don't forget birthdays. Don't forget anniversaries, all of which I do. The Bible never says to you, except when she's nice enough to write them in my book. The, the Bible never says to you, be sure to be a good plumber. Be sure to do the lawn. You know the command the Bible has for you in your marriage? Love your wife. And you know what? We can be the best parents in the world. We can memorize James Dobson. Memorize it. We can go out and get all the godly counsel. And we can be consistent. And we need to be consistent. But unless you find some way to go to your child face to face and say, I wouldn't trade you for all the tea in China. You are the neatest thing I've ever seen. I love you. The rest is straw. And with Jesus Christ, I know what I'm saying is elusive. I know that a hundred of you have right now. Well, yeah, that's a good goal. That's really neat. Tell me how to do it. And I know I can't. But I know this. If you want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ where you hear his voice, you and he can arrange it. I may not be able to tell you how to do it because I may not, I may be a different person than you are. It may work differently for me than it works for you. But the fact is, he's alive. And when somebody's alive, they want to be noticed. They want to be paid attention to. And you can do a thousand things for them and a thousand things to them. But until you start doing things with them, it won't count. I haven't got any end of this sermon. No tear-gripping story. <laughs> no heartstrings plucked. Just an invitation from the Lord Jesus Christ that says this. I've missed you. You're a good man. You're a good woman. You're doing the best you know how, but I've missed you.
and I want you. And you really will not be satisfied until we're together. Would you pray with me? Lord, there are so many people in here who have been so hurt and disappointed by promises that have been broken. And it is so difficult for them to trust in the people that they see, let alone in you that they have not seen. But Father, let us come to know Jesus. Let us come to a place in our lives, no matter how long it takes, no matter how hard it is, to when he speaks, we can hear and we can love him and he can love us because then he will be alive in our lives. Until then, we have not truly apprehended him at all. Lead us, all of us, all of us need it. We pray in his spirit.